This is Truth With Grace, the media ministry of Grace Baptist Church. We're so pleased you've joined us today as we continue our exploration of the truth found in God's Word and the grace of salvation. Pastor Pierre Rosa is continuing his preaching from the Gospel of Matthew, and today we're in chapter 26. Matthew is describing the last few hours before the crucifixion. After leaving the upper room, Jesus and the disciples go to the Garden of Gethsemane. The name of the garden literally means oil press, which is fitting given that Jesus would show just how much stress he was under at this point. What we also find here are three principles about prayer, lived out by the God who hears our prayers. And we learn about the heart of Christ, the Savior so often disappointed by his disciples, but who kept loving them and kept calling them his own. We can draw great comfort from the fact that he still loves his followers that way. My name is Brian Schmidt, and I'll have more information for you at the end of this program. But for now, let's listen to part two of today's message from Pastor Pierre. We just talked about the humanity of Christ, now the humility of Christ. In a few moments, we're going to finish with the heart of Christ. But now let's look at the lessons here on prayer. First of all, according to verse 39, we must pray to express submission. Very simple. In this case here, even though Jesus was one with the Father, remember, he had claimed that I and the Father are one. He was one with the Father. He demonstrates complete surrender to the first person of the Trinity here. We already saw that. But the question here, when we read the prayer, again in verse 39, at least I had that question in my mind. And the question is, did Christ really think he could accomplish redemption without suffering the wrath of God as a substitute for sinners? Is that why he's praying here? When he says, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And I don't think so. I don't think he had any doubt in his mind. I don't think Jesus did not know. I don't think he thought that there was any alternative. And the reason for that, church, according to his own words elsewhere, he says, my soul has become troubled. And what will I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour, he says in John 12, verse 27. So there is no doubt that Jesus knew that there was no alternative to the cross. You see, he's saying, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. I don't think he thought this was possible. What I'm saying is he probably prayed this prayer for the benefit of the believers. He probably prayed this prayer as a way to show them how to pray in alignment with God. Why? Because he knows better than anybody else that we are constantly tempted to seek an alternative to the will of God. And when you and I pray to God, we never pray, Lord, let me go through this suffering. No, I don't know anybody who prays like that. We always pray, Lord, please remove this situation from me. Get me out of this situation. I've heard people tell me many times before, I prayed that God will get me out of my marriage. And I will tell them, that's not a prayer in accordance to the will of God, so don't pray that. <laughs> we constantly pray for God to get us out of trouble. And rightfully so, we are commanded to do that. Remember in Matthew 6 verse 13, Jesus himself teaches us to pray. He says, God, deliver me from evil. So yes, we want to pray to God to deliver us from evil, of course. But in his character-shaping ministry, God ordains adversity sometimes in your life and in my life. We can't escape that. The good news is that when we experience divinely appointed suffering, we have the comfort of knowing from Scripture that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. Romans 8, verse 28. So we know by faith, even though it doesn't look like it, it doesn't feel certainly like it, by faith we know that all things work together 
for our good. So whatever it is that we're experiencing, even today, if you are experiencing some type of agony or doubts or, or, or adversity or suffering, physical or emotional, today even, you can rest assured that God has a plan that he began in your life, according to Philippians 1, and that suffering has a purifying effect in your life. God wants to purify our affections. He wants to purify our lives. And furthermore, we must consider it all joy, we're told in the Bible, to encounter trials. Because of this, according to James 1, verses 3 through 4, the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So we know that the goal of God is to continually shape our hearts and mold our character so that we can be more like Christ. So that's the reason why I believe here Jesus had no doubt that this was his plan. His plan was to come and suffer the wrath of God on the cross. And he is saying here, if possible, but he knew that it was impossible. He is modeling the type of prayer that God expects from you and from me. But unlike Christ, we do not have perfect knowledge of the Father's will. That's the difference. As a result, we don't always pray in accordance with his desires. In fact, all the time we pray in accordance with our own desires. And, and, and we pray for things, for just some silly prayers. Again, we keep seeking alternatives to suffering, but God may use temporary affliction to conform our lives to his standard of holiness. Therefore, we should pray, Lord, if possible, remove this situation from me or remove me from this situation. However, your will be done, not mine. Your will be done. Lord, what do you want to accomplish in my life through this? Lord, however long this is going to take, Lord, give me strength to endure and the peace of mind to make the right decisions. Remember, God has given you the ability to reason, to weigh consequences so that you can honor him in the decisions you make. So Jesus' faith wasn't being tested here in this scene, in case you thought this was the case. No, his faith wasn't being tested. The disciples were. Which leads us to the next lesson from the humility of Christ here. We are to pray to express submission. Verses 40 to 41, we are to pray to defeat temptation. We pray to defeat temptation. Now, there's no question that Jesus was being tempted here. We know that even though the Bible doesn't say Satan was there. But here's what I think may have prompted Christ's prayer. Luke reports that after Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness, this is way back in Luke chapter 4, the devil left him until an opportune time. We're told in Luke 4, until an opportune time. Was this not the perfect opportunity for Satan to tempt Christ? Well, he is suffering agony. This is my chance to try to get him to bypass the cross. Now remember... Satan had already used the mouth of Peter to try to dissuade Christ from going to the cross, which prompted Christ to rebuke Peter and say, Get thee behind me, Satan. This is in Matthew 16, verse 23. So that was an opportune time. Here's another opportune time. And it's not a coincidence, church, that Jesus prayed three times. You can match that with the temptation in the wilderness. It's not a coincidence. So even though Satan is not described here, we know that he's involved. But thankfully, the Lord did not fall into temptation. The disciples did. They disobeyed Christ. He had been very clear with them in verse 38. This is what I want you to do. I want you to stay alert. Watch with me. Be a part of this with me here. 
Evidently, his first round of, of prayers here lasted approximately one hour, give or take. That's why he came to Peter and said, you couldn't watch with me for one hour? I mean, is this, was that too much to ask? We stay awake for many other things. I mean, those of us, I mean, they were not the Netflix generation here. But those of us, we were exhausted. And sometimes we stay awake another hour just because we want to finish that chapter or finish that episode. So um, Jesus said to them, you couldn't watch for one hour? Well, apparently that one hour was enough time for them to let their guards down. And again, it's not a, nothing here is, is by coincidence. I hope you see that. Jesus addressed Peter specifically here as a representative of the 11 disciples here because Peter swore allegiance to Christ. I will go to my death before I deny you. And, and, and moments later, he couldn't even stay awake. And Jesus went to him and said, Peter, you see what I'm talking about? You can watch for one hour with me. This is a tragic irony. We like to focus on the big things like Peter does here. He says, I will go to my death. I will be a martyr for the cause. And Jesus says, really? You can't even defeat physical fatigue for me for one hour? This is a simple request. And the same is true for us, church. We like to think we'd give our lives for Christ if need be. And that's all good. That's all noble. But how about the simplest things? How about the simple commands from Christ? Can we observe the simple instructions, the easiest, quote-unquote, things to do? For example, I'll give you an example. Do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Matthew 6, verse 34. Can we obey Him in that? It's a command to not worry. Did you know that? So it's a simple command. We, we, if we claim loyalty to Christ, can we observe a simple command from Christ? There are many others that are simple But here we have Christ, always the shepherd, taking the opportunity to instruct his disciples. Obviously, they did not intend to disappoint their master, but their flesh took control of the situation. That is why Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So again, uh, let's not miss another transferable principle here for us. And this is it. Temptation bombards us daily. All right? You and I have suffered temptation on a daily basis from different sources because sin has crouched at our door since the first garden, in the Garden of Eden. We're told that, according to Genesis 4, actually, we must master sin because sin is at our door. We must master it. But we cannot master sin unless we are followers of Jesus Christ because unless we are follow, born again followers of Christ, sin will control our lives. We are controlled by sin. That can only change if we are followers of Jesus Christ, when we come to Him for salvation. But we are commanded to master sin. We are commanded to not let the root of sin become fruit in our lives. So we must watch and pray. That is the lesson here. Just like the disciples, you watch and you pray. We are well informed. James describes, for example, the source of our temptation. So it's not like we don't have any excuse. We can't say, Lord, I don't know where temptation comes from. I can't even see the attacks. Oh no, the Bible is very clear as to where the attacks come from. James 1 verse 14, we're told, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. So every time we commit sin, church, it's not Satan's fault. Did you know that? It's not somebody else's fault. We're not the victims of sin. We are the perpetrators of sin, the Bible says. Every time we commit sin, it's 100% our fault because we have not watched. Now, obviously, if, if anyone tempts us, they will have to answer to God, of course, but it is our responsibility to avoid sin. Because when we do commit sin, it's because we are enticed by our own lust. 
Let's talk about the third lesson on prayer here. Besides praying to express submission and praying to defeat temptation, according to the example of Christ here, we must pray to show determination. Okay, Christ prayed not just once on His way to the cross. He stopped and prayed. He was tired like the other disciples. Remember, He was fully human. He ate a big meal too in the upper room. He was, this was a busy week for them. He was tired and He stopped everything He was doing. And he prayed, not just once, but at least three times. He knew that the cup of divine wrath reserved for sinners could not pass away from him. We have already determined that. Therefore, in his second round of prayer here, he affirmed his determination that the will of the Father be accomplished. You see, that was his goal, which again, he desired to fulfill the will of God more than he desired relief from distress. And that's determination here. He modeled what he instructed in the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, Matthew 6, verse 33. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. So he is the perfect teacher. He gives us the principle. He gives us the command, and he models it for us. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. And here he is praying to the Father, seeking the kingdom, seeking, obviously, to accomplish his role in the redemption narrative, which was the role of the substitute lamb who would take your sins and mine. Now, when we pursue the will of God above everything else, what is being modeled to us here in Scripture is that He will sustain us. You see, we seek the kingdom of God. We seek to fulfill His will, whatever He has for us in our lives, whatever His goal is for our lives. We, seek, we pursue that like we're pursuing gold. He will take care of every one of our needs. Now, he may or may not provide immediate relief from pain, but he will grant us something infinitely better than relief. I hope you understand that. That's the perspective of the believer. Something infinitely better, namely the ability to see your predicament from a divine perspective and a renewed wisdom for problem solving. Again, many times in my life, and I, I think some of you will relate to that too, if you've been walking with the Lord for some time now, you ask God to change a particular situation and you keep asking God to change a particular situation. He doesn't change the situation, but the following day, He changes you. He changes your heart. He gives you a fresh perspective on the situation and you say, oh, okay, I haven't considered that before. Well, where does that come from? It comes from God. He's answering the prayer that you're asking Him because He is infinitely more powerful to do infinitely more what we ask or think. So yes, let's ask God to deliver us from difficult situations, but let's consider this. What does He want to accomplish in and through our affliction? Remember, Paul asked for relief. Who wouldn't? He kept asking God to relieve him from some sort of a messenger of Satan, he says in 2 Corinthians. And the answer from God came like this. My grace is sufficient. So Paul is asking for relief and God sends his sufficient grace. <laughs> what a deal. What a great deal. And also the world observes us when we go through suffering. Did you know that? We are on the stage. When we are going through affliction, when we're going through a trial, a difficult situation, your unbelieving friends are looking at you to see how you're going to react. They're curious to see whether or not your faith is real. And when you ask God to strengthen you, that is a great testimony to other people because they see you and they say, wait a minute, if this was me, I would, I would have fallen apart. But that person has peace. How come that person still has joy? 
And then that's your opportunity to explain. Well, the reason is because I have the joy of the Lord, and the joy of the Lord is not conditioned upon circumstances, even if you're facing life-threatening distress. Now, I visited people in the hospital in their last days of life, and I left the place blessed. There have been many times that I went to the hospital to, to, to visit believers in, fellow believers in Christ, thinking I'm going to minister to that person. And I left the place, well, that person just ministered to me. Because of the joy of the Lord, the hope of glory. Now here's a clue about the uh, purifying effect of adversity in our lives. Again, from Paul. He says this in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 through 10. In case you're wondering that the super believers don't face agonizing situations. Here's what Paul wrote. For we do not want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength so that we despaired even of life. You see the similarities with what Christ faced here? We despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death, and will deliver us, He on whom we have set our hope. That's the purifying effect of agonizing situations here. So the question is, are you burdened today? Most people in this generation are. Post-COVID, economic uncertainties, are you burdened today? Now, he may or may not remove your affliction. I can't promise he will. But he will deliver you through it. You see, he may not get you out of the situation. But one thing I know for sure, and I promise you this on the authority of the Word of God, he will deliver you perhaps not out of it, but through it. And He will do that by being there with you. Because He promised to never leave you if you're a believer in Christ. And as a result, remember, you are in Him. He is in you. You are united, spiritually speaking, at the proverbial hip with Christ. So whatever situation you're facing, He's there with you. And can you think of anyone more qualified to go through agony than the one who sweated blood in Gethsemane? So He will get you through it. By being there with you and the goal of, of you going through whatever it is you're going through is the same goal that Job had. You remember Job from the Old Testament? He said this in Job 23 verse 10. He knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. Job 23 verse 10. I shall come forth as gold. Somebody sent me that verse years ago when my second daughter passed away in my arms after 20 minutes of life. And I didn't know. I said, Lord, I don't know how to deal with this. I've never experienced anything like this. Uh, how am I supposed to live? Now, what, what do I do? Well, how do I minister to my wife? I don't know how to do this. I don't even know how to cope with my own grief. And that verse was like water in my thirsty soul. God showed me through this verse that a compassionate friend gave me. I mean, he didn't preach a sermon. He just gave me a Bible verse. And I realized, okay, God is transforming. He is refining my faith. I see. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, we know because we're told that our faith is worth more than gold. Your faith is worth more than gold. So these are the three lessons we learn here from the humility of Christ. We are to pray to express submission, pray to defeat temptation, and pray to show determination. We studied also the humanity of Christ. Let's conclude everything with the heart of Christ in this scene here, verses 45 through 46. The conclusion of the Gethsemane scene here. 
Matthew identifies a pattern. The pattern is very easy to identify here, very simple. The disciples fall asleep, Jesus prays, they fall asleep, Jesus prays again and rebukes them. That's the pattern. They disobey, but Christ loves them. That, that's another aspect of the pattern here. They disobey, but Christ loves them in spite of their unfaithfulness here. And this is a lesson we don't want to miss. The pattern is that Christ loves unfaithful people. Isn't that encouraging? Because from time to time, we will be unfaithful. In fact, we're told this in the Bible. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 13, If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. In other words, He will never adjust His level of faithfulness based on your unfaithfulness and mine. He remains faithful because He cannot deny. God doesn't change. And that's a great comfort. God doesn't learn anything because He already knows everything. He doesn't adjust, he doesn't grow, he doesn't mature because in him rests perfect wisdom. And Christ shares that attribute with the Father. So what we have here in his perfect love too, he is loving his disciples to the very end. And he says to them, he, he could have told them, get up and leave, out. You have disqualified yourself from being in my team because you couldn't keep a simple command. In fact, he could have said, out of here. You added to my grief. But no, that's not what he says. It says, get up, let us be going. He says, you're still a part of my team. I still love you. And I have a plan for you. He is not the kind of Savior, church, that abandons imperfect people. Isn't that encouraging to know? He does not abandon people like you and me who will from time to time botch our testimony. From time to time we will mess up our walk with him. The great comfort that we have is He will never leave us. He will never abandon us. That is called the security of the believer. John, describing the next scene here, the arrest, which is the following scene, points out that Jesus loved the disciples so much that He commanded the arresting party to leave the disciples alone. He said, leave these guys alone. It's me you want. Leave them alone. To fulfill the work which He had spoken, of these whom you gave me, I lost no one. So church, Christ will never lose anyone. You will never be lost. You cannot sin your way out of the grace of God. Now, you can sin your way out of this world where you, you will sin so much that, that you will die as a result. God will say, well, now let me take this guy home. It's time to come home because you're not really being productive down there for me anyway. The point is, once you're saved, and I'm not saying well, you prayed a prayer, you filled out a card. No, if you are genuinely saved, you are in Christ, no one can get you out of Christ. And we have that demonstrated very clearly here for us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. That is the heart of Christ. And that's true of us too. How often have we failed our majestic Savior? Has he ever abandoned you? No. Hasn't he always been ready to forgive and restore? We will see that in a case of Peter here in a few weeks. But these are the three gems or nuggets of, of gold here from the life of Christ in this particular scene. We saw the humanity of Christ, the humility of Christ, and the heart of Christ. And I want you to see, as we conclude, that the two famous gardens of Scripture, Eden and Gethsemane, they bracket the redemption narrative. They bracket the redemption narrative. The first, in the first garden, God commissioned the Redeemer. Remember, in Genesis 3, verse 15, He commissioned the Redeemer. In the other garden, God comforts him. Temporary separation from the Father terrified Jesus. 
But he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2, verse 8. And we're told in Hebrews 12, verse 2, that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. See, there was grief before the cross. There's joy after the cross. And the Bible says he endured the cross for the joy set before him. And what is the joy of Christ after having endured the cross? The joy of a fulfilled mission, of a job well done. And that eliminated any sorrow. The joy of accomplishing redemption for you and for me. And the joy of spending eternity with his redeemed. Specifically, he endured excruciating pain. By the way, that word excruciating means literally from the cross or out of the cross. Excruciating anguish for your joy. The joy only available to those who come to him for salvation. The world doesn't know this type of joy. The world is desperately seeking for joy. That is why every two years there is this whole hype about election because they're placing their trust in elections. They're hoping to find joy if their candidate wins. But not so for the body of Christ. Your joy and mine has to do with the cross. The fact that Christ endured the divine wrath reserved for you and for me. And if you haven't come to Christ yet, today is the day to enter that joy. Today is the day to enter that saving relationship with Him. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is radio at gbcsalem.org. Or you can visit our website, truthwithgrace.org, for more information about our church and this media ministry. Plus, we're always looking for people just like you to help us spread the gospel around the world. This broadcast is provided to you at no cost to the generosity of financial and prayer supporters of Truth With Grace. Please feel free to share it, but please don't charge money for it or edit it in any way without the written consent of Grace Baptist Church. Until next time, this is Truth With Grace.